Father God, we now have the great privilege of looking into your holy word. Father, we are so thankful because they are not simply words on a page. They are not simply the collection of thoughts of men from the past, but your word is living and active. You speak in and through the pages of Holy Scripture. If one wants to hear the voice of God, we open the word of God. And so we ask now, Lord, that you would open our ears, that we would hear your word, Lord, that we would hear the roar of the Lion of Judah, that you would warm our hearts, Lord, with affections for you, that you would enlighten our minds to better grasp who this Savior Christ is, the righteous one. And that you would so move our hands and feet to live in a manner that seeks to glorify you, to make much of you in all of life. Lord, we offer ourselves now during this time as a living sacrifice on your altar. Do with our hearts what you wish, Lord. Make us more like Christ. It's in Jesus' powerful name we pray. Amen. So it's no secret that uh, to all of you that I love the Puritans. And one Puritan in particular that has been immensely impactful in my life was one by the name of John Flavel or Flavel, depending how you pronounce it. And John Flavel once wrote, Peter cannot be justified by the righteousness of Paul, but both may be justified by the righteousness of Christ. End quote. And I think that's a beautiful truth. And it's what we're going to be considering tonight, the righteousness of God, the son. See, there is no man or woman or mechanism in this entire world that could justify sinful man before holy God, except for the one and only the matchless Jesus Christ. And so this, mo- this evening, what we're going to see Our big idea that we're hoping to unpack through the scriptures is that Jesus is the perfect, righteous son of God who came to save sinners. One more time. Jesus is the perfect, righteous son of God who came to save sinners. Now, we could spend weeks in an entire series unpacking a biblical theology of what righteousness means. Righteousness in the Old Testament Righteousness in the New Testament. You could even get more granular. Righteousness in the Pentateuch. Righteousness in the in wisdom literature. Righteousness in the major prophets, the minor prophets, the gospels. But for this evening and for our understanding of the gospel, I simply want to put before you that when we're talking about the righteousness of Christ, we're talking about his perfect state of being, his perfection and obedience. Righteousness, Christ's righteousness refers to his perfect state of being and perfect obedience. And so the way we're going to go through this evening is we're first going to look at how the Messiah was promised to be righteous. Then we're going to see how the Messiah was said to establish righteousness. Then we're going to look at the righteousness of Christ and then briefly look at the consequences of Jesus's righteousness for us. So let's begin with this idea. Our first point, the promised Messiah will be righteous. 
So in order to do that, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Zechariah. I'll give you a moment to get there as it is not a book that people are often in. But turn with me to the book of Zechariah and go specifically to chapter 9. Zechariah 9, verse 9 reads, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. Humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So we could think here how this is speaking to Christ who entered into Jerusalem. They laid down the palm branches and they said, Hosanna. He is just, he is righteous. He is endowed with salvation. This is what the king would be bringing to his people. And we see that fulfilled in Christ. But then we go to Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah 23, and look at verses 5 and 6 with me. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for, for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord of righteousness. Jesus is the promised seed of David, the promised branch from the line of David. And we see here again, he will be called the Lord of righteousness. He will bring righteousness. And in his righteousness, he will save. He will secure He will reign as king. He will reign with wisdom because he is the righteous king. Go a couple chapters over in Jeremiah. Go to Jeremiah 33. And in Jeremiah 33, focus your attention on verse 15 with me. In those days, and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. I just wanted to give a sampling of the passages that we see in the old Testament that when the Messiah comes, he will bring righteousness to his people. He will bring righteousness upon the earth. And the only way that this Messiah this deliverer, deliverer, the Savior, could bring righteousness upon the earth is if he is righteous in himself. And so the Messiah, the, the people of Israel, were always looking for that righteous one to come. That one from the family of David who will restore righteousness through the land. This was the expectation. And so he will be righteous. And now let's look at a couple, two verses here. 
to show how he will establish righteousness. Turn with me to the book of Isaiah chapter 9. A very familiar passage, especially as we near the Christmas season. Isaiah chapter 9. Let's start in verse 6. I was going to read verse 7, but let's start at verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. We read this at Christmas time because we recognize that verse six there, this child is born to us <coughs> is Jesus Christ. And we see here that every government will be on his shoulders that he will reign supreme, that there will be no end to the kingdom or the peace he brings. But how will it be established? With justice and righteousness. And this righteousness says, from then on and forevermore. This is the great hope for the people of God, that the righteousness of God will cover the earth. One final passage in the Old Testament to establish that the Messiah would be righteous and establish righteousness. Turn with me to Psalm 72. Psalm 72. I want to read verses one through four. Give you a moment to get there. This Psalm is titled in some in some of our Bibles as the reign of the righteous king. It was a psalm written by Solomon. And starting in verse 1, he says, Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. May he judge your people with righteousness, and you're afflicted with justice. Let the mountains bring peace to the people and the hills in righteousness. May he vindicate the afflicted of the people, save the children of needy, and crush the oppressor. See, this king would come who is ultimately King Jesus. And he will reign in righteousness. The oppressed will no longer be oppressed. The oppressors will be crushed. The afflicted will be vindicated. The needy will have no want. Those who have been wrongly done, justice will be executed. He will reign in righteousness. He will establish righteousness. Why? Because the Messiah is righteous because God is righteous. And so I just wanted to lay that foundation from the Old Testament. Because so often we jump straight to Christ and we don't recognize that the people of Israel were living with this expectation. This hope that Yahweh would once more come down, that his righteousness would reign, that his kingdom of righteousness would be established. And we need to understand that because then we understand a little bit more the magnitude of Christ coming to earth. 
So we're going to spend the most of our time now this evening on this point here. Jesus Christ's own righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. We need to understand that when we talk about the righteousness of Christ, we're not talking about him simply doing righteous things as much as we're saying that Christ in his very nature, in his very character is righteous. It is who he is. You and I are not righteous. We can at times do righteous acts, but we are not fundamentally righteous by nature. We are sinful by nature, which is why we've been looking at the coming of Christ and why Christ must be righteous. And ultimately why we see his righteousness given to us, this, this imputation, this exchange that can only happen if it is fundamentally part of who Christ's nature is. He is the righteous one. And so we're going to look at four passages here to see that righteousness is characteristic of Jesus. The first one comes from the book of Acts, chapter 3. In Acts chapter 3, verse 14, it reads, right, and this is Peter preaching a sermon here. And Peter says, but you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Think about this. Peter is reminding them when they could have released Christ and instead they released Barabbas. But he refers to Jesus as holy and righteous. Holy, without sin, pure, set apart, righteous, perfect obedience, perfect in moral, upright nature. And what I always found interesting is that when Peter proclaimed this message, nobody argued with him on that point. Nobody said, no, no, wait a minute. You're wrong about that. No accusation could be brought. Their mouths were silenced. We'll see more of that in a minute. But here we see that the terms, the characteristics used to describe Christ are holy and righteous. If we jump forward four chapters to Acts chapter seven, now we get to uh, Stephen's defense. And ultimately he's stoned after this. But in the message of Stephen, and notice how the righteousness of Christ is, is central to the messages, to the sermon of the apostles to unbelievers. It's because the righteousness of Christ is central to the gospel. And so in Stephen's message in Acts chapter 7, verse 52, well, let's start at verse 51 to get kind of the fullness of the, of the context. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. Stephen refers to Jesus as the righteous one, not a righteous one, the righteous one, because Christ in Christ alone is righteous. I, I, I love how uh, the New American Standard Bible capitalizes the references to God. Because here, the righteous one is a capital R and a capital O. It stands out. It is a title of his. He can be given the title of the righteous one because he always has and always will be righteous. 
And so we see that in the, on the lips of Peter. We see this on the lips of Stephen. Now go to 2 Timothy and we'll read it on the lips of Paul. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. We'll start at verse 7, sorry, 7 and 8. Paul says, well, Paul writes to Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul's finishing it out here. This is the last letter he writes before he dies. He sees the hour hand of death about to strike midnight. And as he looks to that moment, he says, I fought the good fight. I've, I've, I've done what God has asked me to do faithfully. And because of that, I know that when I cross into eternity, into the presence of God, I'm going to get a crown of righteousness. But think about that. Paul, how can you get a crown of righteousness? Why can you be given? On what merits can you be given this crown of righteousness? Because the Lord, the righteous judge is going to give it to him. Because Christ who is the ruling and reigning king of all things, is righteous, he can give out a crown of righteousness. It is who he is. It is part of his nature. And that's good news. But Peter, Stephen, Paul aren't the only ones who see Christ as righteous. John the apostle also does too. So go to, with me to 1 John. And in 1 John, go to chapter 2. Look at verse 1 in chapter 2 first. 1 John 2, 1. This, this verse here, this is an encouragement that, that John is trying to give to these believers. How does he seek to encourage these Christians? He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. For somebody who is not a follower of Jesus, for somebody who is living in opposition to Christ and his kingdom, the righteousness of Christ is not, a, is not, a, is not hope. It's not good news. But for those of us who have bent the knee, confessed, repented, and trusted upon Christ, the fact that he is righteous is beautiful news because he can be our advocate. He can bring us before God the Father. Notice this is a passage that John is writing to believers. This isn't a salvation verse. This is for those of us who have been walking with Jesus for some time, Recognize we still slip and stumble and trip over our own feet of sin, get ourselves dirty with sin. And John says, we have an advocate with Father, Jesus Christ, the righteousness. The righteousness of Christ doesn't just save you, it sustains you. It sustains you. 
And the righteousness of Christ never runs out because it flows through his very character of who he is. It is an unending well of righteousness in Christ. In chapter 2, can look forward to verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. So we ask ourselves, okay, why do we desire to do righteousness and grow in righteousness? You ever thought about that? Why is sin no longer sweet to you? Why do you seek now to understand the revealed will of God and walk in his paths of righteousness? Because you have been born from the righteous one. And so you resemble the one who is your life. It says in Colossians chapter 3 that our life is hidden with Christ. And so because Christ is our life, his righteousness begins to show itself through in how we live. It's part of who he is. And so we've seen the righteousness is a characteristic of Jesus Christ. But now let's look at the obedience, right? We're going to see now that Jesus Christ's obedience actually shows or evidences his righteousness. And so all of these are going to come from the gospel according to John. So if we go to John's gospel, we'll, we will see this. Go first to John 4. And in John chapter 4, look at verse 34. Jesus said to them, his disciples, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. Righteousness, right? Perfectly obeying the law of God. And that's Christ's singular focus. His food, the very thing that sustains him is to do the will of God the Father. And that's so striking to me, right? My food, right? Food is what keeps us alive. It's what nourishes us. It's what strengthens us. It's what keeps us healthy. And Jesus says, that which is the very essence of keeping somebody alive, for me, that's to do the will of God, my Father. Do we see our sustenance, our very essence of, of being and surviving tied to obedience to God's will. For Christ, it was. Now we go to John chapter six, go forward two chapters. Verse 38. And again, we pick up on this similar theme. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus Christ, truly man, truly God, Lord of Lord, King of Kings, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And what does he say? His singular focus is to do the will of his father who sent him. This is why Christ can be called the righteous one, because that wasn't just his desire. It's what he perfectly executed. If it was just a desire, we could say that we have righteous desires. Paul says in Romans chapter seven, the very thing I desire to do, I'm not able to do it because of sin. But Christ always perfectly, singularly obeys and accomplishes the will of the father. And now jump to John chapter eight. 
And in John chapter 8, I want you to look at verses 28 and 29 with me. So Jesus said, when you lift up the son of man, then you will know that I am he. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak the things as the father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Let's just look at this verse briefly. Jesus says, when you lift up the son of man, he's talking about his crucifixion. When Christ is lifted up on that tree, nailed to the tree, stripped naked, becoming a curse. He says, then you will know that I am he. Then you will know that I am the Messiah, the savior of the world. And then he makes this interesting transition, right? He ties his crucifixion to this here. And I do nothing on my own initiative. The entire life Christ lived, he lived knowing would be coming to the cross, and yet he lived it perfectly. He didn't seek to shortcut it in any way because it's what his father sent him to do. And the things that he spoke and the things that he taught, the things that he taught is what got him crucified are the things the father gave him. And then in verse 29, he says, in all of that, right, he's saying this looking to the death and torture that he will sustain, says, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Even in the face of immense adversity and suffering, Jesus shows himself to be the righteous one through his obedience because he says, I will do what pleases the father always. And so his obedience shows us his righteousness. So he's righteous by nature, his part of his character. He's righteous. His righteousness is evidenced through his obedience. And as a result, we see on the lips of others that Jesus is declared to be not guilty. The righteous one is not guilty, even though he sustained the punishment of the guilty. We go to Luke's gospel, chapter 23. In Luke 23, verses 14 and 15, Let's start at verse 13 here, 13 through 15. Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. No, nor has Herod. For he sent him back to us, and behold, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. The Jews who brought Jesus to Pilate, accusing him of blasphemy, which would be unrighteousness, Pilate and Herod say, we find nothing in him. We don't see any guilt in this man. He's done nothing wrong. He is not unrighteous. Amazing that those who had grown up with the word of God right in front of their faces see guilt in someone, in Christ, and these pagans who didn't grow up with those scriptures right in front of them see no guilt in Christ. That should alarm us to make sure that we are not so blinded by our own self-righteousness that we miss out the the righteousness of Christ and what he demands of us. We need to make sure that our faces are planted firmly in the word of God. 
In John chapter 19, verse 6, we read, So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify! Crucify! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. What a sad turn of events for Pilate just a little bit later, because here Pilate is looking upon the Messiah, the righteous son of God. He sees no fault in him, nothing deserving of death. He says, I will not kill this man. And yet a little bit later, he gives in to the peer pressure of the crowd and the religious elites for fear of man, and he put them to death. But here, Pilate, a man with no real knowledge of the Jewish scriptures at this point, can look upon Christ and see this man is righteous. He's not guilty. He's undeserving of this. If we go to Acts chapter 3, and we look at verse 13. We'll read Acts chapter 3, verse 13. Again, Peter's preaching again here. He says, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. They delivered and disowned the one that Pilate found no guilt in. They weren't putting Jesus to death because the evidence was there that he was guilty. They were putting him to death because they showed themselves to not love the righteousness of God that was seen in Christ because they had fallen in love with their own righteousness. But Christ is declared not guilty again and again and again. And then he's put to death on the cross. And one of the passages that so strikes me is found in Luke 23. In Luke chapter 23, verse 41. Well, let's start at let's try 39. Let's start at 39. Luke 41, 39. Jesus is on the cross. He's hanging there alongside these two other criminals. And in verse 39, it says, one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him and said, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly. For we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And I've often wondered, what was it that one criminal saw as Christ hung there on the cross? Silent, not defending himself. What kind of righteousness was shining forth from Christ at that moment? that this criminal was able to see the depths of his own sin and the absolute innocence and righteousness of Christ. I often think about that. And it wasn't an isolated incident, though. So let's just keep reading. 
Verse 42. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And so he recognizes him as king. You see, he recognizes him as Messiah there. And he, Jesus, said to him, truly, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour because the sun was obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out the loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Now here, verse 47, the focus. Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. What that one criminal on the cross saw, the righteousness of Christ shining forth, this Roman centurion, what I would imagine has very little to no understanding of the Jewish scriptures, recognizes the innocence and righteousness of Christ. And it says that he was praising God. In the way the text is written there, he wasn't praising a general understanding of God. He was praising the God of Israel, the one true God, Yahweh. And so he sees this unrighteous death, this unrighteous, horrible act of the crucifixion of Christ. He sees the way Christ is silent there. He sees Christ speak these final last words. And by the spirit of God, he's moved to praise the living God and recognize the righteousness, the innocence of Christ. Righteousness was characteristic of who Jesus was, is, Jesus' obedience, evidence showed his righteousness. We see multiple occasions where people declare Jesus to be not guilty. And then we see in the lips and the two, we see on the lips of the two most unlikely people that they recognize Jesus' righteousness. And so what does this all mean? What is the righteousness of God? What are the consequences of, of Jesus' righteousness? We're going to unpack this more fully next week. But if I had just stopped and we don't look at what it produces, we don't understand the full picture. So in Romans chapter 5, verses 18 through 19, we see that God justifies believers on the account of the righteousness of Christ. God declares those righteous who have trusted in Christ because of the righteousness of Christ. He credits the righteousness of Christ to those who trust in him. When I was a youth pastor, I used to say, Jesus had the perfect 4.0. You had nothing but F's. But because you trusted in Christ, he transfers Christ's GPA to you. Romans 5, verses 18 and 19. So then, as one transgression there resulted, condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness there resulted, justification of life to all men. For as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. God justifies. God counts us as righteous.
If you turn to, in our final verse, we'll look at is 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, and this is one of those verses that we should memorize and keep before us always. We see that all who believe in Christ share in the righteousness of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What God has demanded for humanity that humanity would never be able to accomplish. If we were given an eternity to try to become righteous, we couldn't. What the thing we couldn't ever do, Christ has done for us and credited to us And as we place our faith in Jesus Christ, God sees us as if we lived the life his son lived. We are right. We can become righteous through the righteous one. So next week, we're going to unpack this. We're going to bring it all together. We're going to take all these parts that we've been looking up over these last few weeks. And we're going to just proclaim the gospel in its fullness. Before we did that, I found it important to make sure that we understood that Jesus is the perfect, righteous son of God who came to save sinners. It was always the expectation the Messiah would be righteous. Christ has always been righteous by nature. Christ showed his righteousness and obedience. Jesus was declared not guilty. It was recognized by others. And as a result, those who trust in Christ are made righteous. It's an amazing truth that should keep us in our faces forever. It is, if Jesus was not, if Jesus isn't righteous because he's living now, if Jesus at any point for a hundredth of a second was not righteous, there would be no salvation. But because Jesus has always been and will always be righteous, we can have great hope. So with that, let's pray. Father God, we come before you now. We thank you, Lord, that we have just been briefly able to to scratch the surface of this inexhaustible mine of, of, of glorious truth, Lord. God, you are the righteous and holy God. You are the righteous, invisible God. We looked this morning, Lord, in Colossians that you are the invisible God. And yet, You sent your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be the image of the invisible God. And Jesus, living, breathing among us, living this perfectly righteous life, has made your righteousness visible to the world. Father, we thank you for the righteousness of Christ that's been made available to us by faith. We ask, Lord, that we would never minimize your righteousness, that we would never minimize our need of your righteousness, and that we would sing it for all eternity. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.